If Christ is king, how should the Christian consider the kingdoms of this world? What does the Bible teach us about human authority and what it means to love our neighbors and our enemies? Before we render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, let's know what it means to render unto God what is God's. This is the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, the modern prophetic voice against war and empire. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. This week and every week on Biblical Anarchy, we seek to live counterculture to the empire of man and to instead seek the kingdom of God by unpacking what the Bible teaches about government, authority, and human relationships. I am your host, Jacob Daniel. So today's episode, we're going to be looking into the temptation of control. To start out, I thought that we would go down a line of thinking or questioning that I think will sort of get into an important point that I want to talk about. So to start out, I want to ask this question. What is the archetype of villainy? And specifically, the archetype of like a villain in most superhero stories, or in many of the epic science fiction or fantasy stories in literature and film. I mean, there's a few different ones, of course. Some of the most iconic villains have kind of followed a very similar archetype. And it's the archetype of like the power-hungry villain whose goal is to control and dominate and rule. So some examples of this, in Star Wars, you have the Sith and the dark side of the Force trying to rule the galaxy with an iron fist. And they emphasize using the Force to obtain their goals by making the Force bend to their will as opposed to the Jedi who seek to serve the Force and to protect life. In Lord of the Rings, you have Sauron. And, you know, like the intro to the first movie, Sauron poured into his ring his malice and his hatred and his will to dominate all life. And there's also the temptation of the ring, in specifically men, to take the ring and use the ring either for their own selfish ends or even sometimes, you know, like we see with Boromir, people who want to use the ring to destroy their enemies. Another example that comes to mind is Thanos in the Avengers movies, who even seems to try to pass himself off as some kind of altruistic, noble, tragic hero who has to obtain all this power because the universe needs correcting and he has to be the one to bring that correction and to force the universe into the order that he thinks it needs in order to survive. We could spend an entire episode listing similar examples to this from various fiction and media. Now, the Bible, of course, is also not lacking in examples of this sort of archetype. The Pharaoh wanted to control his kingdom and the Jews as his slaves. He went as far to the extent of killing all of the Hebrew infants in an attempt to control his slave population and to control his kingdom. Then we have Haman and Bemelech, King Herod, Satan himself. These are all good examples that we could spend a lot of time unpacking. Although these are examples of evil people who were possessed by a desire to dominate people around them, the desire to control and rule, it isn't just found in the obvious examples of villainy that we find in either the Bible or in different stories and narratives and mythologies. See, actually, the desire to control things 
and to define the reality around us is so old, it really goes back to the garden. Many Christian theologians and scholars from all schools of thought, Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Protestant, early church fathers, and even Jewish theologians and commentators have done work on what the tree of knowledge of good and evil was and represented, going back to Genesis chapter 3 in the story of the fall, and specifically why Adam and Eve were forbidden to eat from it. So we all know that disobedience was part of the fall, and, and disobedience and rebellion against God for eating the tree that they were told not to eat is what caused original sin. But to go even deeper than that, the tree of knowledge seems to represent the knowledge of good and evil. And in this context, what that means is the ability to define what is right and wrong. Let's look at the passage itself and see what the serpent tells Eve in his attempt, successful attempt to deceive her. So this will be Genesis chapter three, verses one through five. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? I I like that right at the beginning. It's like trying to sow doubt and placating a little bit, maybe to ego or pride there. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So the serpent first tries to sow doubt into trusting what the Lord has said, and then tempts Eve with the idea that you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And what does it mean to know good from evil? Well, I think in order to know good from evil, it's to have the ability to define it. And that ability rests with God alone. Now, of course, we have the law of God written on our hearts and revealed to us in the natural world. And so we are able to discover and even rationally understand and and integrate what is right and what is wrong. But that is distinct from knowing it in a sort of, in the same way that God does, where God knows good and evil because God is good. God intrinsically is good, and what is good is from God. And and God, by his very nature and by his decree, uh, establishes what is normative in terms of what is good and bad. He's the source and the foundation for these things, both metaphysically and philosophically. And so the garden sort of represents not only the fall of man and the introduction of sin into the world, But if we we sort of look thematically into what caused Eve and Adam to sin and sort of what their sin was beyond just disobedience, in a lot of ways, they were tempted with and fell from the idea that they could be like God. So I think where this connects to sort of the ideas that I want to talk about is that in a lot of ways, this echoes the sort of sin or the distortion to God's order that the state is guilty of. It's guilty of doing the same thing that Adam and Eve done and and that others in the Bible did as well, where they take a role and an assumed position of authority, often by by fiat. So they're, they're taking a position of authority 
and not through some sort of like natural hierarchical selection, like something in a marketplace where, you know, someone gets promoted to the top or someone sort of voluntarily, you know, trades for different properties and acquires a a position through getting hired or through acquisition of a firm or something like that. But no, it's it's rather through, you know, an imposed threat of force within a geographic area, which, you know, in and of itself is, you know, antithetical to the idea of like, you know, do not murder, do not steal, well, to threaten a bunch of people with murder and theft in the name of, you know, like we've talked about before, that's problematic in and of itself. But then beyond that, then the state often then claims a monopoly over decreeing what is right and wrong and defining what is right and wrong. And that's a big problem too. I think a clear biblical example of this, although there are many, can be found in the book of Daniel. We go to Daniel chapter 3 and we have King Nebuchadnezzar decreeing that people must bow down to him whenever that trumpet or that sound of the instrument is played. And we see a similar story play out with Daniel himself later in the book of Daniel, where it's made illegal to pray to anyone but the king. So in these instances, those who were the head of the state are claiming to be like God, and they are taking a monopoly over the right to define or the ability to define what is good and what is bad, and then to punish based upon their own, you know, claimed authority and definitions. You know, so there's so many examples in biblical history and even in, you know, just modern day, you know, governance and nation states where this abuse and this distortion happens. And I think that if Christians are going to, you know, again, take biblical principles and apply them to governing structures, it is a major strike against the idea of a, you know, centralized monopoly of force known as the state because of that inherent risk and temptation that plays out in almost all instances where the state essentially starts to act as its own sovereign. You know, even in instances like in our own, you know, United States where we had like a, a constitution that, you know, paid some lip service to, you know, limiting itself and the rights of the people not coming from the government and trying, you know, in, in like, you know, documents like the Declaration of Independence to appeal to some sort of creator as the foundation for what is right and wrong. The minute that they claim that power, it just, you know, immediately created the space for that power to be abused. And so even something that is founded on seemingly noble intentions just cannot last. Because when man is given the power to define what is morally normative, and when, you know, man is given power to then, you know, sovereignly rule over others through fiat, that inherently then comes with people using that power in an idolatrous fashion. And in my opinion, even a lot of the, you know, things that, you know, rituals and practices that we do here in America border on idolatry, you know, things like the Pledge of Allegiance or, 
if the national anthem is played, people being expected to stand and put their hand across their 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 heart and to pay this sort of like reverence to the to the flag and to the imagery of America and this sort of like you know American mythology of the founding fathers and the the sort of you know imagery or identity of America you know the American experiment you know again there is a baby in the bathwater there that you know I do want to appreciate and respect and you know rescue but the unfortunately you know a lot of that bathwater to me is is very dirty and you know it ends up looking a lot more like worship of the state and people bowing to Nebuchadnezzar or people eating the forbidden fruit than it does like people acting in you know a Christ-like fashion you know and adhering to the first commands you know you shall have no other god before me and you know to not bow down to any idols but again hearkening back this is i think some of the explanation for why in passages like first samuel 8 god basically uh, likens the israelites asking for a king asking for a centralized ruler is essentially idolatry and the rejection of god as the true sovereign and as the one who the only one who has that just authority now one might pose the objection or uh, a counter in the form of saying well if the government is enforcing god's moral norms and laws and enforcing you know christianity and the bible on the society you know that that would be okay or would that be okay and you know breaking that down requires a little bit of thought and nuance so in one sense on paper it sounds really good right we want biblical based government well then that means that the government should be you know governing according to what the bible says and the bible in a sense should be the law of the land there's a few problems with that one i would like to start out by pointing out that in the old testament we kind of see this already done this experiment of a you know at least you know a old testament based government where the bible where the where the torah was the, the law of the land and you know the results were mixed to say the least and i think there's multiple levels of analysis that need to be done here one you know i think trying to connect this to the gospel first and foremost as i you know usually as i want to do we have to recognize that the state fails in terms of the ability to legislate morality and to make the people more moral than they are you know and this was an observation that you know Rothbard and, and other anarchists have made you know essentially that the the government is never going to be more moral than the society and even if you could try to make the government more moral than the society it exists in the people just wouldn't follow the laws um and there's there's a lot of empirical evidence for this that laws that don't have you know 90 plus percent support of the population are just really not going to be enforceable you know or be followed and this is why things like prohibition failed things like you know drug drug criminalization you know have failed and even things like 
pirating movies and music and stuff, you know, it's seemingly hard to crack down on a lot of the, you know, copyright laws and stuff. And so the um, Old Testament, you know, is, you know, Israeli government was not able to prevent the people from becoming disobedient. And if anything, it often led to the king's being the ones who would lead the country into disobedience and idolatry. And, you know, one can say, well, you just need to make sure you have righteous kings. Well, look at King David. You know, he was a man after God's own heart, and he even struggled mightily to not screw everything up. Still, he was condemned at certain points for waging certain wars. He obviously had the whole scandal, adultery, and consequences that ensued from that. So even the quote-unquote best king that the Old Testament has to offer really misses the mark and still causes a lot of problems. And and then his son causes even more problems. And the book of Judges described, as I talked about before, this sort of period of time where there was no king in the land and people did what was right in their own eyes. And it was a very anarchistic style of self-governance among the different tribes, it was very decentralized, and the people asked for a king to solve their problems and fight their battles. But the king didn't do that. The king made the Israelites fight king's battles and just created more problems. And this connects to the gospel first and foremost because we see that you know trying to create a a state or a government or or a king that governs based upon the Bible doesn't work. And we are still, we still end up in desperate need of a savior, which, you know, like Paul himself talks about many times, the point of the law was to point us to our need for a savior. The law could not save us. The law could not make us righteous. The law could only show, you know, a sort of like a measuring stick of how far from the mark we really were. And, you know, I would argue that there was even, you know, there were definitely a lot of parts of the law where God was being generous with us. I mean, like Jesus says, you know, he allowed divorce, among other things, out of sort of caving to the wickedness of our hearts, not because it was what he wanted to morally establish as good. You know, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus doing a lot of effort to sort of uh, disavow the notion that the Old Testament law was the highest pinnacle of morality um, or of what God wanted humans to do in the pursuit of righteousness. Rather, the law was sort of like, if anything, the opposite. It was like a minimal standard, you know, and sort of just like, you know, God pleading with them with these rules to just be less sinful and to sort of like describe a minimal level of sinfulness that God wanted them to stick to. And they still struggled mightily to do that. So the idea that we're going to try that again when it's already been tried, I think is a fool's errand. And, you know, beyond just the Bible, we've had in, you know, history since Christ, nations that were governed by the church. And that led to a lot of intra and inter-religious wars. And, you know, that's definitely not something that I think, you know, any of us want to go to again. And the very least, it didn't work. It still led to a lot of the same problems that the Israelites ran into. And beyond just the futility of the effort, I don't think that the Bible itself 
condones even such an attempt if it if it were something that were to be um, possible. I think that if we sort of look at the Bible from a zoomed out view and look at the the narrative, the redemptive arc that's being told, a subplot that that is going on there is Jesus showing how God wanted us to reject political systems as the solutions or the means to our salvation or our means to, you know, making ourselves right with God. You know, the Jewish people at the time and to this day reject Jesus as Messiah because they confused the the messianic prophecies with, you know, a political savior, someone who would come and reinstitute the kingdom of Israel. When, you know, as Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. And the kingdom that Jesus came to usher in and the salvation that Jesus came to offer, you know, it, it wasn't this worldly thing that people were looking to him to do. And to be clear, Jesus called out sin and Jesus called people to righteousness. And I think as Christians, we should do that. But we should do that as Christ did. And, and Christ didn't at any point in his life teach that we should do that through political means. He didn't do that himself, and neither did any of his apostles teach that, you know, Romans 13 notwithstanding. You know, and again, to just quickly, you know, Romans 13 is one of those passages that you almost have to deal with on an ongoing basis. But, you know, Romans 13, again, talks about not being a terror to good works, you know, and, and instead only being a terror to evil. Well, something that is a good work that we need to not be a terror to is, you know, the act of evangelizing and the act of trying to lead people to Christ. And it turns out that, you know, compulsion and, you know, locking people up in jail or threatening them with violence and then trying to, you know, preach the gospel to them is not only counterproductive in terms of you know, the act of trying to persuade someone or the act of trying to soften someone's heart. But, you know, this is, again, not the model that Jesus himself gave us. You know, if we want to talk about temptations of power, not only do we have the stories that we've already brought up, but we have Jesus being tempted by Satan himself with power. And, you know, specifically to have ownership over all of the kingdoms of man. Satan said to Jesus in the temptation of the desert, you know, he took him up, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in the moment of time and said, to you, I will give all this, all of this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. If then you will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord, your God and him only shall you serve. See, the Bible isn't a isn't showing us a religion or a model of religion where we are supposed to go out and wield the sword of the state in the pursuit of uh, proselytizing people to the faith or leading people to Christ. And yes, there's a role for a civil governance that would protect the innocent and uh, punish the wicked, but it's limited to acts of aggression. Because otherwise, it flies in the face of the call to go out and preach the gospel. Because if you're going out and 
killing all the non-Christians because they're not converting to Christianity, you, you know, you suddenly look a lot more like other religions and not like Christianity and not like Christ himself who came and died for the world and came to be a servant to the world and said, you know, that what you've done to the least of these, you've done unto me. And when Jesus encountered sinners, he didn't attack them. He showed them love and mercy. And yes, he told them to stop their sin, but he told them to stop their sin after he showed them that love and mercy and called them to repentance and coerce them into it. This is what Christians need to model if we're going to be Christians, if we're going to be Christ-like. And there's just no way to reconcile the act of trying to bring people into the faith and trying to, in a Christ-like fashion, impact the culture and to reconcile that with using force and compulsion in an attempt to do those things. You will find instead what you create is a distorted Christianity where Jesus looks a lot more like a conquering warlord than he does the Savior who came down to be a servant to all, washing his apostles' feet and humbling himself even to the point of death on the cross. The Bible definitely speaks of authority, and, and we are definitely supposed to have a respect for authority. But we're supposed to have a respect for legitimate authority and godly authority. And I think that when you look through the entire history of the kingdom of ancient Israel, you look at the ministry of Jesus here on this earth, and you, you know, add to that looking at the times in which Christian nationalism has been attempted and failed and been counterproductive in many, in trying to actually you know, create a culture of people who actually seek after Christ. And to add, you know, not only do I think that all these things add up to a rejection of the state, but to hearken back to the beginning, we are, you know, Christians are being tempted with this power in a way that echoes the temptation that Adam and Eve got, that echoes the temptation that that Satan tried to uh, do to Jesus, that you know, echoes the temptations of, of power that we see like in, you know, even different stories outside of the Bible. And, you know, a common story that has, you know, a very Christian-like backing to its fiction and mythology in Lord of the Rings, Boromir wants to use the Ring of Power to defeat Sauron. And to me, this is directly analogous, and you'll hear Christian libertarians make this, irregular libertarians make this argument a lot, that the ring of power only serves one master, and the only solution is to throw it in Mount Doom. You cannot wield the, the weapon of Sauron against Sauron. And I would say that we have far more evidence for the state being the weapon of Satan and the weapon of the kingdoms of men and of sinful rebellion against God than we do the idea that the state is an agent of God or a weapon of God or tool of God that, that could be used in such a way. Now, God is capable of using the actions of evil men and using them to further his plan for the ultimate good of all mankind. But that is not to be confused with making those things good. You know, it wasn't good that Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. It wasn't good that 
Pharaoh was trying to enslave the Hebrews. It you know it wasn't good that the Jews and Romans wanted to crucify Jesus. God turned those things, the evil intentions of men, for good, and that's very similar to you know what we're told to do in Romans twelve, which echoes what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, which is not to overcome evil with evil, but to overcome evil with good. And there's a bit of nuance into exactly how to do that. And I'm not going to pretend that I can, you know, exactly expound upon, you know, a, you know, an easy playbook for how we do that. But I do know that in a general sense, that means that, you know, Jesus said his kingdom is not of this world. And we are part of that kingdom. We are, that is our inheritance. That is part of Abraham's promise from God that we are now co-inheritors to in Christ. And that kingdom is not of this world. This is not our home. And so we need to be doing things with that, you know, kingdom covenant theology mindset and, you know, doing things unto the kingdom of God, which, you know, Christ is the king of, not to the kingdoms of men. We need to not give into the temptation to try to, you know, fight back against our enemies using the same tools that they use to terrorize us. You know, again, hearkening back to Romans 13, is not a terror to those who do good works. Well, historically speaking, the state has been terrible to Christians. And even today, there are states where being a Christian will grant, you know, warrant you nothing but but trouble and possibly death. So, the idea that, you know, statism is that which we are supposed to be, you know, planting our flag on, no. It just doesn't hold water. It is rather just one of the oldest reoccurring manifestations of the oldest temptation that man has always faced, which is the temptation to be like God, the temptation to try to control the world around us and to force things to be the way that we want them to be. That is not our responsibility. That is not that is not our calling. That is not in our authority to try to do. Rather, we are to submit to God and to his authority and his sovereign decree. And we are to stand on the truth of the word, the truth of the gospel, and to follow after Christ in his example of loving our neighbor and loving our enemies. Hard? Yes. Complicated at times? Yes. But something that requires us or that would, you know, that can be reconciled with the idea of using the state at all, whether that's through, you know, full-blown Christian nationalism or just, you know, the Republican Party or whatever you have it. Um, these things don't work. We need to remember what Paul says in Ephesians, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of this dark, you know, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I mean, it says it right there. Our struggle is against you know, not flesh and blood, but all of these things that are contrary to God and his holy righteous order. These things try to co-op 
the idea of order and authority and and you know and and lawfulness, but they co-op them with the temptation that the serpent gave to Eve, saying that you will be like God and you will know good from evil, as in you will be able to define what is right and wrong and be your own ruler. And that is not compatible with a biblical interpretation of authority or government or truth. So again, this is, you know, just the second episode and we have so many different topics that I want to go into that I hope continue to build the case for the idea that, you know, that I just want us Christians to consistently live out this call to consistently, you know, be like Christ, like our namesake suggests that we should be. And that if we don't belong to this world, that we really live that out and we fight the battles that we have to fight differently than this world does. And we don't try to co-op the kingdoms of men and turn them into machines for changing society into being more like the way we want it to be. We, we've tried that in many different forms, whether it's ancient Israel or America and everything in between. And I think we just need to make, go back to making it simple and, you know, go out there, do unto the least of these and be fishers of men, be salt and light in the world, not a terror to people in the name of Christ. So I thank you all for, for listening and I hope that you continue to listen and tune in. And if you like what you're hearing, subscribe, share this with your friends and, and family and all that. And, you know, check out uh, all the resources that we have, you know, at the Libertarian Christian Institute. You know, if you have questions and you want to dive more into these topics, there's so much uh, right at your fingertips that you can you can go and find the answers for. And even if you can't find the answers for, you can reach out to some social media. I thank you again for tuning in. And next week, we next episode, we are going to have the first guest of the show on any good friend of mine, another Christian libertarian. And we're going to get into the topic of conversation related to war and what the Bible says about that. And also specifically, you know, what's the Christian response to the situation going on in Russia and Ukraine, which continues to get worse. And we want to, as Christians, you know, be able to, from the Bible, speak truth into that and be a light in the darkness for all these things going on in the world. Thanks again. And we will see you next time. The Biblical Anarchy Podcast is a part of the Christians for Liberty Network, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. If you love this podcast, it helps us reach more with a message of freedom when you rate and review us on your favorite podcast apps and share with others. If you want to support the production of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, please consider donating to the Libertarian Christian Institute at biblicalanarchypodcast.com, where you can also sign up to receive special announcements and resources related to biblical anarchy. Thanks for tuning in.